Welcome to the Innovate Podcast. I'm David Castro, an Ashoka Fellow and CEO of the Institute for Leadership, Education, Advancement, and Development. Innovate features dialogue with social entrepreneurs, visionaries, and leading scholars engaged in transformative thinking, action, and creative collaboration. Innovate is produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal. The program is underwritten by Arch Street Press, publisher for the creative, collaborative community. Find out more on the web at archstreetpress.org. Today, our guest is Kevin Kirby, CEO and co-founder of Face It Together, a national nonprofit organization dedicated to empowering communities with innovative, sustainable, and proven tools to attract millions of Americans to recovery from addiction. Kevin's goal is to fundamentally change the way we deal with addiction by creating a national network of Face It Together affiliate organizations. Kevin and his co-founder, Charlie Day, launched Face It Together in 2010 to scale the successful model they had first created in Sioux Falls. Kevin's effort has attracted 23 employers in Sioux Falls to become part of the movement, representing the largest employers in the community, up to roughly 40% of the local workforce. Personally, Kevin is an addiction survivor and has been in remission for over 10 years. He has a degree in finance from Arizona State University and a law degree from the University of South Dakota. Among his many honors, in 2011, Kevin received the Spirit of Augustana Award for Advocacy and Humanitarianism, and in 2013 was inducted as an Ashoka Fellow, an experience we share. Kevin, thank you so much for joining our conversation today. You're very welcome, David. Looking forward to it. Yes, I'd love if you could start by sharing some of your own journey um, with addiction and recovery, and, and particularly with a focus on how that experience shaped the work that you now do. Well, uh, gladly. Um, I, uh, uh, my, my background is uh, in the private sector and I've worked in the uh, financial services field for a number of years. I was an owner operator of a business. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in boardrooms, um, for-profit, not-for-profit, public and private. Um, and I've even facilitated uh, planning sessions for boards of directors. That's, that's kind of the career that I had evolved into uh, back in the, the late 1990s. I was on 10 or 11 boards and uh, some private uh, businesses and, uh, as well. And, and happily married for 25 years at the time, three great kids. Um, had all the, the toys and, and by, by secular measures, I had the world by the tail. And uh, that was about the time in my life when uh, things just quit kind of making sense with me. Uh, I started to lose interest in things that uh, used to be very important to me. Uh, I started to experience what I, I I became an expert at self-diagnosis. I was depressed and I was anxious. Um, And my world was falling apart inside of me. Uh, and yet I didn't want anybody on the outside to know what was going on on the inside. So I became very much uh, a master of defense mechanisms. I, I was a perfectionist and a people pleaser and a caretaker and an enabler, 
all these things just to make sure that people around me didn't know that I was falling apart inside. And uh, I thought I was crazy. I, I didn't know that there was another way of life possible. And, and I knew that, you know, about the only thing that, that made my, my inner life uh, falling apart manageable was consuming more and more alcohol along the way. Uh, that just kind of made the pain go away. It made me feel comfortable in my own skin. Uh, I could actually pretend that the outsides matched the insides. And, you know, I ended up leading a, a, a life really of charades, uh, an absolute preoccupation with managing what other people thought of me and making sure that nobody knew what was going on inside. That was an exhausting kind of an existence. And, and the consumption of alcohol made it uh, more manageable. So in, uh, in the late 1990s, uh, I simply, uh, I couldn't keep that juggling act uh, afloat any longer. And uh, it was my idea. I, I, I went to my wife and I said, uh, you know, I don't, I don't even really know what an alcoholic or an addict is, but I'm willing to try anything. Uh, I'm going to go check myself into a, a treatment facility and and uh, that's what I did. And immediately upon arrival, I heard everybody in the room telling my life story. And it, and it, was, a, it was a pretty amazing sense of relief that after years of battling, uh, I, I finally knew what my issue was. Um, you know, I was, I was addicted to alcohol. And, and all of those symptoms that I had been feeling uh, were pretty typical symptoms that millions of other Americans uh, uh, feel. So that began my treatment journey. Um, and like a lot of us, uh, uh, you know, I've learned an awful lot about the disease. I have a, a chronic disease. Uh, I wasn't going to get well in 30 days of treatment. Um, that's just not the way we treat chronic diseases uh, like diabetes or hypertension or, or asthma or other, other chronic diseases. Um, so I bounced in and out of uh, treatment. I spent eight and a half months in uh, residential facilities over about a two and a half year period. I really wanted to get well. Um, and I, I could see in the eyes of people around me what I wanted and I simply, um, I couldn't get it. I had, I had a lot of unlearning to do and, and, and a lot of learning, you know, new lifestyles. And, you know, eventually, um, Eventually, it all started to make sense, and and uh, and I started to change. And, and so, in uh, October of 2002, I entered my last treatment facility, a four and a half month program, and uh, I've been in remission ever since. And and so and somewhere in that process, you had an experience of the services and the resources to support people. Uh, struggling with addiction, and you had an epiphany, I guess, at some point in that process to say, hey, I, I've got something to contribute here. I want to really make a change in the way that American society addresses this. Can you tell us about that part of the story? That yeah. You know, fundamentally, there are two major issues, um, both of which contribute to the, to the awful, frightening fact that drug and alcohol addiction is easily our nation's biggest public health issue. Uh, affecting 23 million Americans, uh, not to mention the families, uh, kids and spouses and parents and all the other lives negatively impacted. 90% uh, of those people don't get the help they need in any given year. 
the economic impact on the nation is roughly a half a trillion dollars a year. Uh, and yet, you know, after searching for somebody uh, out there doing something meaningful to address the big problems um, and not being able to find them, that's, that's kind of the birth of uh, the organization that today I'm associated with. Fundamentally, there are two major issues. Too few people get help and too few people get well. And on the, on the too few people get help, you know, we know um, what the barriers are, keeping 90% of those 23 million people away from the help they need. And uh, yes, there's a basket kind of, of, of barriers, but uh, I'm convinced that easily the, the biggest barriers keeping people uh, from accessing any kind of services is the fear and the stigma and the shame and the stereotypes that uh, yet today in 2013 are alive and well. Um, darkness and ignorance has, has shrouded this disease for generations. And until we um, peel those layers back, uh, we're simply not going to uh, make service uh, accessible uh, by the bulk of the people that suffer. So too few get help, too few get well. You know, when I, when I was uh, in my two and a half year period uh, where every time I would uh, receive treatment and then go back home and try and live a new life and relapse, the, the downward spiral accelerated. The, the lows kept getting lower and lower and lower. And then I'd go back and get another 30 day treatment episode. Uh, and I, I repeated that cycle time and time again. Never fully comprehending, and my family never really comprehended this either at the time, uh, that this is a chronic disease. And what I'm getting is acute care treatment for it. I'm getting, you know, as if I had a broken arm. I'm going, I, I go get 30 days of treatment, and then I'm expected to go home back into my environment and, uh, and, and apply the new skills that I've learned immediately and successfully the rest of my life. Well, it just doesn't work that way. The, you know, the whole treatment, uh, how we treat this disease has evolved in a very insular way and largely is intended to uh, follow, it follows the money. Uh, you know, um, the treatment system delivers the services that uh, the payors will reimburse uh, rather than, uh, you know, pulling the chair back and saying, okay, how do we get people well and keep them well? Uh, you know, the the treatment industry has never been financially incented to uh, to answer that question. So, so the two big problems: too few get help and too few get well. We've got to remove all the barriers keeping people from accessing services, and we've got to fundamentally transform the service delivery system in this country to match the chronic nature of the disease. So, I want to ask you some really specific questions about that change that you. Um, think is needed in the way that we approach treatment. But before we get there, I want to drill into one other question, which is really about you as a social entrepreneur. And um, so the way I'm, I'm hearing you tell the story that you, you had uh, your experience with getting to recovery, really getting yourself to a place where you can say, hey, I'm in remission, that that really was a rocky experience. It had its ups and downs. And, and you could see that there was a better perhaps a better way to do this. And maybe you had some reflection in that process about what's wrong with the system. And, and I'm sure a lot of people have that, a similar experience, but you, unlike a lot of people, decided to get up and do something about it and uh, to found an organization and to really dedicate your life to 
changing this. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that moment or moments. What was it that, um, was it a person? Was it a particular part of the experience? Something in your own development? What, what was it that motivated you to be, uh, be the change in the world, if you can think of it that way? Yeah, well, great question. Um, you know, like, I think like a lot of people uh, who have survived some potentially fatal, catastrophic kind of a, an event, or even, you know, people who have suffered uh, such events, the loss of a loved one or so forth, you know, um, many people end up spending the rest of their lives working in those fields, you know, it, and it's not like uh, I woke up someday and made that decision. It was as if I was handed this tremendous opportunity and with it came a serenity of purpose. Uh, you know, there was there's just no question in my mind when I uh, completed my last service episode now over 11 years ago, I came out of there with a, I knew I wanted to do something in the, in the field of, of uh, addiction treatment or recovery. Um, and I didn't know what it was, um, but I was counseled pretty well along the way by people who probably knew me better than I knew me at the time, you know, the professional people I was working with. And uh, uh, they said, okay, go back to your community and help it meet it or help it identify its unmet needs. And then you're an organizer, you know how to put people together to, for a common cause, uh, put some solutions together around the needs. So that you know, that, that serenity of purpose hasn't left me. Uh, I just, uh, I feel like every event in my life thus far, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, uh, has prepared me for this moment. That's great. That, that's, that's helpful to, to hear you describe that. The treatment uh, of addiction in this uh, society is, uh, I think you've described it as, as fractured and, and, um, and it's, there's such a broad spectrum of things that happen in the world to help people uh, that are addicted. On the one hand, we have you know volunteer organizations and and peer support groups. On the other hand, we have you know really specialized uh, medical services. Um, and and I think for many people, many people talk about recovery as a spiritual process. You know, and sometimes it has religious overtones to it. Um, even some of that comes through in what you said about you know coming to a place of serenity. On the other hand, we know that, you know, addiction has got medical dimensions to it, that it's got perhaps genetic uh, dimensions. Can you talk a little bit about where you see us as a society in this, you know, very broad package of things that we do and your effort to bring, you know, coherence to that through your work? Uh, yes. Um... Yeah, the, the treatment industry has really evolved in, a, in an insular way, you know, for decades, and, and it is what it is today. It's very fragmented. It's uh, there are thousands of folks out there in the business. Uh, they're speaking different languages. They they they're very competitive. Typically, uh, it's virtually impossible for people with this disease. And 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 the the situation I run into these days most often is working with families. They're just kind of thrown to the wolves, you know. You get all these competing silos out there, and the, and families are facing this issue at probably the most horrific moment in their lives. Somebody's life is hanging by a thread, 
And now I got to figure out this whole treatment thing. And I got all these people telling me that they're the biggest and best and brightest, and they got the best outcomes. And all I want to do is save my kid's life. You know, well, we, you know, we can do better. And um, so what's the future of treatment? <clears throat> well, uh, if we have anything to say about it, and I, and I believe we will, uh, we're going to change the dialogue. Uh, you know, I'm not even sure I like the term treatment. Um, addiction is a chronic disease. First and foremost, it's a chronic disease. Science and medicine has been clear about that for decades. And yet nothing, the service delivery system in this country has not been designed uh, in recognition of the chronic nature of the disease. Well, I'm convinced that's going to change and, and, and we're doing everything in our power to um, get stakeholders excited and communities around the country to fundamentally change that. So, um, Without getting into a lot of detail about what's going on in healthcare, but uh, healthcare is a, um, the, it's the economic forces that are aligning themselves today to fundamentally transform the delivery of healthcare in this country are really working in favor of dramatically revolutionizing what we do about drug and alcohol addiction. And um, the push with healthcare is is away from yesterday's fee-for-service reimbursement system where healthcare got compensated every time they touch patients to tomorrow's system where uh, healthcare is going to be in the business of getting people well and keeping them well. Uh, the reimbursement system is something called value-based reimbursement. Uh, that, that's how healthcare is going to get paid. So all of a sudden, healthcare can no longer ignore public enemy number one, our nation's biggest public health issue. Uh, you can't ignore drug and alcohol addiction uh, in the primary care setting if primary care is being compensated based on outcomes. Uh, because uh, uh, drug and alcohol addiction contributes, uh, it exacerbates so many physical and emotional kinds of uh, health issues. Uh, so healthcare all of a sudden is in the business of addiction management. Well, healthcare has ignored this issue for decades. So they've got to figure it out and they got to figure it out relatively quickly. And as healthcare attempts to figure this out, they're learning uh, here in our, where we're building our pilot and ultimately we're going to help other uh, systems learn uh, around the country. You got to treat it like a chronic disease. So what? So what's that mean? Well, you, uh, the primary care doc has to do a better job of identifying patients who suffer from the disease. There's got to be a uh, rather seamless, uh, world-class kind of a transition to resources right there in the clinic to connect people with uh, any kind of services that they might need. And then uh, the communities that are going to be successful are going to be those that have um, community organizations designed to help people sustain recovery from drug, from the chronic disease of drug and alcohol addiction. So that's basically what our model does: is we we uh, we create these affiliated community organizations around the country, designed to help every sector in communities uh, understand and treat drug and alcohol addiction for the uh, as the chronic disease that it is. And specifically with healthcare, uh, to help healthcare um, figure out how to, uh, again, for the first time in history, 
do a good job of helping its patients manage this chronic disease. So you referenced something that I want to uh, surface for our listeners who may not be aware of it, um, and I want to make sure I understand this right, that the Affordable Care Act really for the first time says that some uh, addiction services must be part of every insurance policy, uh, health insurance policy. Do I have that right? Yeah, there's something known as, as parity. Yes, that's, that's sure that's what you're referring to. Yeah, and then and then, but the interesting part of it, and maybe this is what you're referring to, and I and I have a specific question about this actually, is that apparently now, now there's a major dialogue going on about what services should be supported by healthcare uh, insurance, and and um, and I believe even you know the federal government may be involved in working with people with experts like you in terms of figuring that out. And I think you've said some very interesting things. I mean, just in terms of the shift uh, to thinking about this as in the way we treat a chronic illness, like perhaps diabetes or something like that. So my question is, what have we learned about the way that people treat chronic disease that really should now be the future of addiction treatment? Do you have views about that? Well, I've, I've learned an awful lot. We, we've looked, um, for success stories with other chronic diseases. And, and the bottom line is we don't do a very good job in this country managing chronic disease, period. Uh, you know, roughly 70% of our $3 trillion spend every year on healthcare goes for chronic diseases. And, you know, I, I think the changes that are happening in healthcare, uh, where again, uh, healthcare is gonna be compensated on for getting people well and keeping them well, the focus the whole agenda for healthcare today is about population health management and designing um, evaluation models, data uh, systems that support, uh, that uh, increase the likelihood of making smart decisions with populations. So uh, here's, a, here's a bit of information I learned along the way that, you know, of all the health outcomes in the United States, uh, 10% of those health outcomes are influenced by health care. Now think about that for a moment. You know, $3 trillion spend, health care's impact on health outcomes is only uh, is, uh, relevant in 10% of the cases. Well, so what's the other 90%? Well, it's the environment, it's society, it's, it's our life habits. It's, so as, as healthcare is going through this radical transformation, and now they're going to be paid for quality outcomes at affordable cost, they got to figure out this whole world of population health. So uh, there's going to be a lot more emphasis down the road on uh, improving what we do uh, in the whole field of chronic disease management. And yet, you know, everything there's a whole uh, industry out there helping uh, healthcare and employers today manage chronic diseases. But uh, you can look till your fingers get numb on the internet for any chronic disease programs around the country that include drug and alcohol addiction. You won't find any. It's, it's this big void space. So, so one of the really transformative things about your work is to try to say we have to really take this seriously in terms of thinking about addiction as a chronic illness, and then using the kind of models that we would apply to chronic illness in the in the development of treatment for this disease. Do, am I hearing that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a generally accepted model out there applicable to the universe of chronic diseases. It's called the Wagner Chronic Care Model, but uh, thus far. Uh, it does not include drug and alcohol addiction. Now, 
we live in a world today where there's always a lot of research being conducted. And I wanted to ask you, as a leader in this field, where do you see are the opportunities uh, for uh, research? Where are we in the trajectory of, of developing strategies here? Are we very early in the cycle where we don't really know a lot and we're doing a lot of experimentation? Are there some things that we do know and that we could that could become a core part of any strategy? Are there any proven methods in your view? Where where do you see us in that journey? Well, that's a big question. Uh, you know, what we know today is uh, I mean, there's there are developments coming out of genetics. Um, uh, about all we know, though. Um, Bottom line is that uh, where does this disease come from? Well, it's some combination of genetics and environmental factors. You know, not not terribly helpful. <laughs> uh, will we get smarter about that? I, I think so. You know, I, I suspect that uh, the genetic scientists will discover markers that, uh, you know, show a predisposition to addiction, which will help us, uh, no doubt, uh, perhaps with, in prevention. You know, early education for those folks who show those uh, genetic traits. Um, but but let me talk about research in this field kind of in a broader way. Um, you could uh, you could fill warehouses with the reams of research that has been done on the pathology of drug and alcohol addiction. You know, from just about every any any perspective that you wanted to approach it. Uh, you can um, find very weighty, very credible white papers, uh, and, but there is very, very little research that has ever been done on surviving the disease. You know, it's as if uh, the scientists lose interest the minute somebody finds their way to treatment. Uh, we really don't know um, what works. I mean, it, it, that, that's a bit of an overstatement, but. You know, think of it. We've got 23 million Americans suffering from this disease. 90% don't get the help they need in any given year. So the, we're only studying the few that, that do find their way to some kind of assistance. And, and even then, you got thousands of different providers out there doing different kinds of things. And, and if we could shift some of the emphasis away from the pathology, towards what works in recovery. And that's, uh, that's one of the commitments of our organization. Uh, as we move forward, we're going to be uh, developing all kinds of data, working with healthcare systems and employers and others with a financial stake in solving addiction. Well, we're going to be capturing all that data. We've got our own electronic health record system. We've got our own interactive uh, therapeutic tool. We've got, we want to take the mystery out of recovery from this disease and make it, uh, as simple as an algorithm, you know, if you do this, this, and this, your probability of long-term recovery from this disease goes up X percent. Well, you know, it's almost, it, it's shocking to me that that research doesn't exist, but there again, that's a, a void that we intend to fill. So that's exciting. I mean, to be at the beginning of a journey that's going to really have a huge impact on the lives of so many people. I wanted to ask you a question. I know a, a big focus of your work is about the question of stigma and shame and, and transcending that, overcoming that, um, getting people to talk about 
this in, in a way that um, encourages more people to face it and, and uh, get the treatment that they need. Of course, historically, we know that a lot of this work um, and some of it, I think, within the community viewed as being very effective has been done by Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. And I know that, you know, anybody that's in the recovery community has a has a, a strong relationship with those uh, people that work with AA and NA. Um, and I wonder how you see that work now. Uh, I have a couple of questions I wanted to ask you. W one is, you know, are we at a place where we have to sort of really uh, come to grips with anonymity um, and and transcend or change our thinking about anonymity? Um, is that part of the culture shift that you're working towards? And then uh, a follow on to that, how do you see uh, a partnership with AA and NA in the work that you're doing going forward? Yeah, you ask very good questions, David. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, um, anonymity uh, exists for a very good reason, and uh, you'll never hear me uh, say anything negative about the peer-based 12-step support groups that have emerged over the last seven decades or so. They're wonderful, and they've saved millions of lives, and uh, anonymity is the spiritual foundation upon which they are based. Um, and they, they play a definite and, and uh, incredibly valuable role uh, as we as, as society now changes its focus here and, and begins accepting drug and alcohol addiction as a chronic disease. And we mainstream it into health care. We may mainstream it into the employer-employee relationship. Uh, these organizations will continue to play a vital role. Um, Will it be a changing role? I suspect so. You know, I, I, it's difficult today to get folks to tell their stories uh, because of a misimpression that uh, anonymity is a bar to uh, our humanity, uh, our, our freedom to speak about recovering from an awful chronic disease that in many cases almost killed us. Um, but that 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 is a misinterpretation. I mean, I, again, I have all the respect in the world for those organizations. I don't think I'd uh, be alive today, uh, but for uh, twelve-step groups. Uh, so I, I really mean it when I say that. But uh, the the folks who who view anonymity as a bar to uh, it's not a gag order. You know, it exists. It serves its purpose very well within the walls of those organizations. And, and the, those organizations should never be drawn into public controversy. I, 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 I believe me, I, I get that, and I support uh, the purpose behind all that. But there is no gag order, and, and to the extent that we remain silent with this disease, we let others define us. Uh, so it really, you know, from my perspective, uh, even though this is a very, very personal decision for everybody to make when they're ready, if they're ready, and if never, that's okay too. But I, I feel a sense of obligation. I feel that my story can help people, help reunite families, and perhaps even save lives. So that's why I'm. Uh, that's why I very freely tell my story. Yeah. So so that's uh, that's fascinating, and I I think, you know, having 
I've had people in my family be in recovery and also I've I had the privilege to work with um, people in the recovery movement. And uh, it is it is so it is so interesting. One of the things that I find very interesting about recovery is that it does definitely have this spiritual element um, of the work that goes on. You can see it and hear it. And even I, we're hearing it today in, in your story. Um, but it also has this very tangible clinical medical uh, component to it that's equally profound. And and to be able to address uh, the two of them together does seem to require, you know, transcending these ideas about stigma and shame and and getting this out into the light which obviously you're doing so powerfully. Um, I'd love for you to spend a few minutes talking with us about your efforts to scale your work and what that means to you, what you're trying to do. We'd really like to give listeners a chance to both understand your objectives as you try to take this work across the country and, and to answer the question, what can they do to help you? Well, sure. Um, yeah, we're building a, a pilot uh, we've been at it really now for uh, almost four years, building a pilot in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and, and that organization is called Face It Together Sioux Falls. And, um, you know, I kind of joke whenever I give a rotary speech or something, you know, uh, how do we, you know, we only have to change one thing if we're going to solve every community's biggest public health issue that costs every community in this country hundreds of millions of dollars. You know what that is? What's that? Everything. <laughs> That's great. It, it really is. So how do you do that? Well, you know, there's been a lot of well-intentioned efforts in the past to do um, some really good things in, in the field of drug and alcohol addiction. But I've, I've yet to find one that is committed to building the caliber of organization that has a possibility of being successful. And again, I don't mean to be critical of anybody who's gone before us because they blazed the trail. They, they gave us this opportunity, but we're committed. We're, we're committed to uh, becoming to um, drug and alcohol addiction. Uh, let's say what Susan G. Komen for the cure became to breast cancer. You know, you think of the world of breast cancer 30 years ago before Komen, uh, right, right as they were kicking off. And the analogies are really strong to, to the world that we've inherited today in drug and alcohol addiction. The disease was shrouded in darkness and silence and ignorance, even shame. Uh, you couldn't communicate about it. Uh, you couldn't use the C word. You know, uh, cancer was a death uh, sentence back 30 years ago. And, and uh, even Coleman, when they first started, couldn't use the word breast in any of the, their communications. Um, so, you know, in this dark, hopeless, helpless world where women didn't know what to do and, and, and knew nothing about um, self-detection and, and that sort of thing. Uh, service delivery was shoddy. You compare that with the world today of drug and alcohol addiction, and, and you can just about, you know, uh, it, it's almost a mirror image. So something of that caliber, you know, something of that magnitude, I think, uh, is going to be required to be successful. So, so what we've done here with the pilot is uh, is try to solve the two problems I outlined earlier. Too few get help, too few get well. So you put uh, you put a new community organization, nonprofit organization, at the heart of a community that is committed with everybody in the community bought in to fundamentally changing everything. Uh, 
removing the barriers every step of the way, mainstreaming uh, the disease into healthcare, mainstreaming it into the employer-employee relationship. Well, that busts down some stigma right there. Uh, besides, um, working with healthcare and with recovery service providers in the area to redesign what we do. So to, to, uh, to make any episode of service that people receive along their journey of recovery uh, a piece of a much bigger pie. And the bigger pie is a continuum of care, and that comes from the, the vernacular of chronic disease management. Uh, you know, treatment is not standalone. You know, you don't graduate, you don't get a diploma, you don't all of a sudden return to life and everything's uh, uh, back to normal. Uh, like other chronic diseases, the whole treatment system uh, needs to change and the players need to adapt with it to uh, to recognize that they're just a piece of a much bigger pie. Now, do you, in terms of how you um, grow the network across the country, um, can you talk a little bit about that, your geographic uh, um, objectives and where you're going next and where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. And, and believe me, we've evolved. You know, we're, we're social entrepreneurs. We're managing a startup enterprise. Uh, we've made some mistakes along the way. We learned from those mistakes. We've pivoted using the, the terminology of uh, startups. You know, when we first started, we thought we would grow kind of like the Coleman organization group. We would uh, leverage relationships. We would know people in communities around the country. Um, that's how Coleman grew. Uh, well, we've, we, we, we have the opportunity to spend an awful lot of time in discernment in understanding ourselves and our customers and our markets. And what we've come to believe is that communities can be successful at fundamentally changing what they think and do about drug and alcohol addiction if they've got the right people at the table. So our strategy these days is to go into communities where we are invited by folks with the capacity to change the system. So who are those people? Well, uh, healthcare delivery systems, they've got all the pieces. Uh, typically, they're very large employers. So they've got their own populations. They've got uh, the patient populations. They typically, in today's world, they employ physicians. They've got their own clinics. They've got in-house insurance companies. So they've got all of the pieces right there in their organizations to, to begin a pilot model in a community or even better, to act as champions to assemble uh, their peers, you know, leaders of other uh, employers in the community to come together to learn about this model that delivers value uh, to all the stakeholders. So that's that's our strategy today is, is really to stay close to integrated delivery systems, uh, large healthcare systems, which by definition uh, keeps us in the upper Midwest We've got a handful of uh, uh, fairly large, geographically uh, speaking anyway, uh, healthcare delivery systems with whom we are uh, working already and intend to scale up uh, with them uh, throughout their, wherever they have a footprint. That's great. That's great. But, but the bottom line is, uh, you know, Coleman became so valuable to the movement of breast cancer because they created brand equity. The pink ribbon became ubiquitous uh, and, it, and it became symbolic of hope and survival. And, you know, when I think of that, I think about families gathering and 
you know, the race uh, for the cure and, and uh, having celebrations and so forth of survival. We have the potential here uh, as as healthcare changes dramatically, as they need to figure out drug and alcohol addiction, as here we've got a team of social entrepreneurs committed to doing something uh, fundamentally different. We have an opportunity to create brand equity. So there's there's value in consistency. So as we, uh, you know, we're developing everything uh, with an open architecture philosophy because we really don't care who gets credit for anything uh, here. We just want our mission to become reality. But but there is value in doing this uh, lockstep, creating a network of communities that are speaking the same language, that are you know using the same symbols and so forth, so that we can eventually build brand equity and attract cause partners like the Susan G. Komen for the Cure organization has done so masterfully. Uh, you know, you can't walk up and down an aisle at a grocery store these days without seeing the pink ribbon uh, adorning countless products. There are organizations that I believe a successful movement in this arena will appeal to. So if someone is out there listening right now in a community where they're struggling with these issues, uh, they should give you a call and see if they might be able to create a Face It Together uh, chapter in their community. Yeah, um, you know, again, um, we the way our model can can be most effective, the way we can scale to other communities most effectively is to connect uh, initially with folks who have the capacity to actually bring us to town and build a nonprofit organization. So, yes, I, you know, connecting us to the folks uh, who meet that criteria in communities uh, would be a wonderful way to, uh, to, to get us out to, to see if it works. So one of the exciting things about where you are in your journey is that you're probably about to be, and maybe even in the process right now, of interfacing with social entrepreneurs across the country, um, people who uh, in their communities are going to uh, really take the laboring oar and and uh, be creative in terms of addressing these kinds of issues in their home, in their backyard. And uh, many of our listeners are people studying social entrepreneurship. Um, and so at this point, uh, we're coming to the end of our dialogue, but I'd love to get you to just share a little bit of your wisdom uh, in terms of uh, how you keep the fire burning, uh, how you work through the hard places. Um, what advice do you have for somebody who may be just starting out their journey as a social entrepreneur? Well, again, a great question. You know, nobody ever said what we're uh, what we've set out to do is going to be easy. Um, you know, we don't pretend to be smarter than or better than uh, others. We know we have an awful lot to learn from people in the communities uh, where our model will eventually end up. So, what we want to do is we want to challenge uh, people in communities to be entrepreneurial, to take risks, to be uh, okay with making mistakes, uh, to be okay living in a gray world. You know, there's, no play, there's no playbook here. There's no, no black and white answers. Um, you know, what, what really helps me and my team stay focused is our first value. And, and it's a value that we live every day, and that is that we have reverence for those we must reach. You know, with, 
it's not very hard to get out of bed in the morning knowing that there's 23 million people living right here in this in this country uh, with this awful, horrendous, life-threatening, family-destroying disease uh, of drug and alcohol addiction. Um, so if we can challenge uh, people in communities um, to, uh, to build upon kind of the example that we offer with our affiliate model and the tools that we've spent so much time and energy and money uh, building, um, the, the, that would be uh, the best of all worlds. That's great. Yes, that's very true. I mean, the ability to remember the people that you're trying to serve can be such a sustaining force. Kevin, for people who want to support your work, the best way to find you right now is on the internet at wefaceittogether.org. Do I have that right? You do, yes. And is there any, are there any other key ways that people should try to reach you? Uh, I think that's probably the most effective. Uh, we try to keep it current, and, uh, and there's uh, phone numbers and, and uh, email addresses for our team members on there as well. So Great. Well, we'll make sure to put those links up uh, when we put the podcast up. And um, I just wanted to say, Kevin, in my life, I've had an opportunity to work uh, on leadership development projects with people in recovery. And I've always found that something about the recovery process really deepens them as individuals, gives them great power and potential as, as leaders. And, and I can hear that in uh, your dialogue today. So thank you so much for your inspiring leadership in this, in this important work that you're doing. We really, really look forward to catching up with you again in the future. Great. Okay, David. On behalf of our producers and sponsors, Arch Street Press, Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our work, visit us at archstreetpress.org.